Ursula K. Le Guin is one of this country's leading writers. She has done scripts, science fiction, poetry, and children's books. Her 1967 novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, won the science fiction Hugo and Nebula Awards. Le Guin's most recent novel, Always Coming Home, was published with a cassette of music from the imaginary culture of the book. Ursula Le Guin's most recent book is a collection of her essays titled Dancing at the Edge of the World, Thoughts on Words, Women, and Places. And I noticed in one of the essays in in the new book, it was written in the 70s, but you reprint it, and then in parentheses you put in some of your updated ideas on some of the things that appeared in that original essay. Why did you do that? Well, it's a... uh, It was an essay written about The Left Hand of Darkness, actually, which... uh, is a book which kind of questions gender by, by uh, being about an androgynous uh, civilization on another planet. And the book was written, It actually that book came out in 69, but it was written in 67, 68. And uh, there were a lot of problems, like if you have a person who is both male and female, what's the pronoun you use? And at that time, the accepted wisdom was that the the pronoun he is generic. It doesn't mean man. It's, it means both male and female. And I accepted that. And I was still accepting that in 75 or 6, whenever that essay was written. Although the feminists had been trying to get it into my head that that, that is really not true and that he does mean he. And it does not include women, really. It is an exclusive pronoun. And so things there were things like that upon which my mind sort of changed in, in the 70s. And the, the reason that I wanted to reprint that uh, article, which is called Is Gender Necessary, was that it keeps getting quoted from by the people who, you know, I don't agree with. <laughs> and, and they're sort of patting me on the head and saying, look, look, this, you know, she, she, she says that, that, that all people are really male, you know. And I kind of didn't want that to go on any farther. It was very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. The book is really uh, far-reaching in, in the way that you posit uh, people who are neither male nor female. They, they change their sex according to to the position that they're in at any particular time. But I was interested to hear you quoted. Not exactly. <laughs> well, maybe you could explain that more clearly. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, they're, um, most of the time they're neuter. They're, they're, uh, they actually are non-sexual. But uh, once a month they go into Kimmer is, is their phrase for it, which means that they take on sexuality and become sexually active, in fact, intensely active. But they can be male one time and female the next. So you never know whether you're going to be uh, you know, which, which, which partner of the partnership you're going to be from month to month. You might have a child one month, and then a couple of years later you might sire one. So this obviously would change life uh, for people. A great deal. But, but you've also written that uh, as far-reaching as that is, that, that you were timid when you wrote that book. What did you mean by that? Well, if I said I was timid, I, I was just being... Uh, false modesty. I wasn't timid. I, I think I was fairly adventurous and inventive, but I had very little to go on. There was, in 67, no woman's movement that I knew about, and people really, we were just beginning to question, what is gender? What is sexuality? How much is it culturally gendered? How much is it physiologically gendered? And stuff like that. So what I did was just leap in and change the physiology, human physiology, so that we're we can all be both mothers and fathers, as it were. What I 
didn't know how to follow through was how that would change society. I think the, the, the human relations in the book ring pretty true, the, the personal relations, but I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me how radically and totally that would change the institutions of society if, if there was no dominant gender. How would it change society? Who knows? I mean, it, it would take another novel to think it out. And actually, you know, I think people have been thinking that now with with the feminist writing going on, people are thinking uh, along these lines much, much more. We've all sort of liberated one another, men and women, to think about these things. Do you think there'd be a radically different society than we see today if you were were to write that novel? Sure. Or anybody. Yeah, sure. What would it be like? Well, but that's what I can't say. You see, you you can't just pop this kind of stuff up. It, It took me a year and a half just to plan the society, the world in left-handed darkness. You know, this stuff takes thinking. <laughs> you don't just get a bright idea and write it down in a novel. You, you, you're building a world. You've written in, in another essay in your new book on menopause that women give up their reproductive capacity with more or less of a struggle. And when it's gone, they think that's all there is to it. This is to evade the real challenge and to lose not only the capacity to ovulate, but the opportunity to become a crone. It requires fanatical determination to now become a crone. What do you mean by a crone in that sense? Well, you could say one way to define it would be an old woman who is not defined as such by young men. Who is she defined by? By herself or by other women. And you think many women give up that opportunity? Yeah, sure. It's very hard not to. The pressure in our society is uh, obviously we are... uh, a male-dominant society, and also we're very youth-dominant now. And so with a double pressure that uh, to be a woman in the first place is to be a bit second-rate by by the sort of basic cultural definitions. And not to be young is definitely, male or female, to be second-rate. And when you're fighting against whole cultural pressures like that, you know, it it takes a lot of uh, strength of character to, to kind of hold out against such pressures. Feminism has pushed uh, many boundaries since it began. Do you think it has pushed boundaries in the world of literature? Oh, yes. Do you think that women are getting more recognition, or or are there more women writing? How does it do that? Oh, I don't know whether there are more women writing. Uh, It's generally been, for the last 150 years or so, it's been 30 50% of, of writers have been women depending on where and what kind of writing we're talking about. I think the, uh, the struggle to reform the canon of English literature will make sh- we, we may get more women genuinely included in it, not kind of included as sort of second class uh, or let's let in Emily Dickinson because uh, she was such an odd little virgin, you know, and so on. Um, but the, I think that what's really happened is that, that women are freeing themselves up to write as women, not as imitation men. Uh, that the sort of well, now this is shorthand, but but the, the Hemingway side of the canon is is just not effective anymore. You know that this the idea that that women should be asked to write like Ernest Hemingway is is the grotesqueness of this is now pretty well accepted, and that's a change. That's a big change. Is there a aesthetic of, of women's writing? Oh, no. Oh, no. 
as many aesthetics as there are women. <laughs> is, is there are there parameters though that make it uh, women's writing as opposed to men's writing? Well, this this is a this is an enormous uh, topic of debate right now. Uh, and what you what you get into is what they call essentialism, which means you know roughly the idea that there is an essential sort of from the beginning God made distinction between men and women that is essential in the organism, and that therefore men and women will perform all acts differently in male and female styles. Uh, this to me is not, you know, this, this point of view can be defended. I'm a daughter of an anthropologist. I was brought up as a cultural relativist, and it's very easy for me to also be a sort of a gender relativist and say, so far as I know, all the differences between men and women, except the ob obvious physiological ones, are culture-determined. We don't know if there are any mental differences between men and women, aesthetic differences, perceptional differences. We don't yet know. We've never really asked the question. Is that unknowable? No. Huh. I don't think anything's unknowable if you work hard enough. Would we find that out by finding a culture in which men and women have been raised differently than they've been raised here? Well, one thing you do is study other cultures mm -hmm. where, the, where the, the whole gender relationships are different, sure. And the anthropologists have been doing that increasingly. Uh, but then also, we, one way to do it is to change our culture. It's kind of long-term and, and revolutionary way to do it, but it certainly would be interesting. You recently wrote an essay in the New York Times book review entitled The Hand That Rocks the Cradle Writes the Book. And if I read you correctly, you seem to be arguing against the idea that women had to choose between having children and writing, that they could do both. Well, that's, that's to simplify rather radically a, a piece I spent the last three years working on. Um, that is that title is the, the, the title of Times put on the piece, which is in this book, Dancing at the Edge of the World. And there it's called The Fisherwoman's Daughter. And it's a, f a longer piece. The, the one for the Times was cut. Um, what I'm, what the piece discusses, uh, is women as writers, and particularly the mother as a writer, who is, um, I say in the, in the article, has been a kind of disappeared person. It, the received wisdom has been that that women can either have babies or books. And if you can't have babies, then you can have books or turn that on its head, and, and if you have books, then, then of course you don't need babies, as if, as if the two things were equivalent somehow, and as if uh, they, um, well, the silly thing about this is, is it's never applied to men, uh, you know, men who are fathers, fatherhood does not seem to disqualify them as novelists, nor does writing books seem to disqualify them as fathers, but, but women are supposed to do one or the other, and this, I'm just trying to investigate this whole, what strikes me is a very weird idea. But on the other hand, it is very difficult in a society that uh, has a lot of lip service praise of motherhood, but for instance, has absolutely no services for mothers such as child care, and that is our society and the South African. In such a society, it's very difficult for a woman with kids to be an artist full time. It's, it's, a, it's a killing job, and uh, having been through it and knowing a lot of women younger than I that, that are trying to have both books and babies. I try to discuss this, this whole kind of dilemma that, that women are put in, that men are not put in. 
as artists. Uh, it's a very interesting subject and a very difficult, sore topic, you know. But I think it is one that a lot of people are interested in. Was that a very difficult struggle for you to have both children and write books? I was very lucky. Uh, it was much less difficult for me than it is for, for most women. Uh, I had, in the first place, uh, an income for my husband. And I had a partner, a husband in this case, who was uh, really totally supportive. And it's not just the money that counts. Uh, he had a job, I had a job, and we had three kids. So we sort of had three full-time occupations, but together we could do three jobs. What is pretty nearly impossible is for one person to do two full-time jobs. And when your kids are little, it's a full-time job, unless you have competent, efficient, real child care you know, to, to solve that problem. I'm speaking with novelist and writer Ursula K. Le Guin. You've also recorded some poetry in the studio using double tracking and some studio techniques. We have the poem heartbreak through, and let's hear it now. Heart Breakthrough, recorded by Ursula Le Guin. What fascinated you about those words? They just came, all three of them together. And, and I thought, my God, it's a poem. Because <laughs> the way they play off one another. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I was just looking at them on the page. Heart Breakthrough, Heart Breakthrough. And you kind of t take them apart and put them together again in, in mm -hmm. different fashions in that, in that recording. Are, are you doing more experiments in the studio like that? I hope to do more in the studio. Uh, I've mainly, uh, not having access to a studio or any equipment, I've just been playing with solo voice as performance art. But I would love to, uh, 
I may be able to uh, play in, in Judy Gron's studio. She's a you know, feminist poet in, in Oakland. Um, and Judy is doing a lot of this kind of, of thing and has some equipment. So I hope to go down and make funny noises, uh, perhaps, in <laughs> Oakland. <laughs> well, well this, this experiment, along with the cassette of music, which, which came with your last novel, make me wonder if, if you want to push beyond the printed page. Are, are there things that you want to do aside from writing now? I've become very interested in performance in the, in the whole performance aspect of art uh, in the first place, as, as a written text, uh, you know, it slowly dawned upon me that the written text is nothing but marks on paper until a reader performs it. What a reader is doing is performing a text, although it, it, it normally happens in silence. A reading is a performance. So, of course, is a what we normally think of as a reading, which is somebody standing up in front of an audience and reading or performing a text. But the, the kind of the continuity of the whole thing has, has been interesting to me. And the, our curious sort of devaluation of oral literature, that, you know, the real text is written. It isn't real till it's written down. That goes very deep in most of us. And yet here we are in, in a culture that is really, uh, with, with the media, with television and radio and, and everything else, you know, is getting... Uh, writing is just one of our media now. And it's funny how, how we still kind of are pretending that it's central. And it's not, I'm not devaluing writing in any way. I'm a writer. But there's this whole thing about this, the speaking voice, the spoken voice that, that we've kind of devalued. And I think it's time to bring it back and say, look, this, this is part of literature just as much as the written text. When you do readings, do you approach it from the standpoint of improvising, will you read a different no, a text a different I, way each time? There's there's always some improvisation, but I can't. There are lots of of, of word artists, verbal artists who who can literally improvise, and that was an art form of its own in the Renaissance. I I discovered was poets get up there and actually improvise poetry in front of an audience for an hour. We heard folk musician Jim Page do that last week, just sing a song and, and reel just off the verses it of it one after the yeah. next. Singers have been doing it all along. Uh, poets kind of lost, they scared themselves out of it. And I am so uh, page-oriented and, and, and writing-oriented that I just lose my nerve if I try to improvise. So I have to have some sort of text in front of me, a sort of score. But then I can bounce off that and play with it uh, as I get more confident. Ursula K. Le Guin, her most recent book is a collection of essays titled Dancing at the Edge of the World, Thoughts on Words, Women, and Places, published by Grove Press. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Thanks, Rob. It's Seattle Afternoon.